Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Austin Meek with Waco Business News, and you're listening to Downtown Depot, where we track the ins and outs of Waco business. My guest today is David Mayfield, owner of David Mayfield Selections and their commercial storefront, The Waco Wine Shop. He talks about studying in the CIA, the Culinary Institute of America, importing South American wines while living in Uruguay, and a few selections you should consider for your Easter table this Sunday. But first, it's the Business Review with C.J. Jackson. Great Expectations. I'm C.J. Jackson, and this is the Business Review. Leadership requires continuing education on yourself. Rhett Power, CEO and head coach of Power Coaching, shares tips on how good leaders become great. Number one, you get a coach. really helps people look at things that they need to focus on. Number two, personal work. That means reading, that means staying focused on your health, uh, your sleep, uh, those personal things that actually also influence performance. Self-reflection and becoming more self-aware, uh, understanding your blind spot and your weaknesses and acknowledging those and, uh, and getting help. Power says getting to know your people and allowing them to get to know you are key qualities of an effective leader. Uh, getting to know your people on a personal level. The first job I ever had in management, my boss said, well, you've got to have this line between you and your people, and you've got to, you've got to be tough. It intuitively went against who I am as a person, and so that, that didn't work so well. You've got to get to know what drives your people. You've got to get to know what makes them tick. You've got to get to know them on a personal level because that builds trust. The final thing would be let them get to know you because when they know you, they know what drives you and what motivates you, even what your vulnerabilities are. What worries you? What scares you? What what your weaknesses are? It makes you more human and more real. And people, I think, respond to that better when you ask them to do something. Great leaders tend to be very self-aware. They understand that they have to invest in themselves, and they understand that they have to invest in their people to lead and to be effective, whatever their mission. The Business Review is a production of Livingston and McKay and the Handcammer School of Business at Baylor University. The Business Review can be heard Thursdays during Morning Edition and All Things Considered on 103.3 Waco Public Radio. I'm now joined in studio by David Mayfield. David is the owner of David Mayfield Selections, which has its Waco wine shop downtown at Austin and 18th, as well as a very hefty distribution arm of the company. Welcome to Downtown Depot. Thanks for having me. What's your Waco story, David? How'd you end up here? 
So I went to Baylor. That's kind of what brought me here initially. I went to Baylor um, after graduating. I, I worked in Waco for a little while, stay, stayed here in town, and uh, was trying to figure out what I wanted to do and uh, what, 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 you know, what was the next step for me. While, while I was working, I was kind of coming up with all sorts of, um, I don't know, wild ideas. One of those wild ideas happened to be working in the wine industry. I remember pitching the idea to my wife at the time, um, thinking there's no way she was going to go with it. And so I just kind of casually threw out, well, what, what do you think about me working in the wine industry? Not really understanding what that meant or what that even looked like. And uh, really just after reading a couple books about people that worked in wine and thinking that sounded interesting. And she was like, oh, that sounds cool. You ought to look into it. So I did. And um, we left after that to move out to California. We went to the Culinary Institute of America, the the other CIA. And uh, we worked. I, I studied out there for a little while, studied, did a wine program out there. Was your wife doing this as well, or is just she your own is a painter? So she was painting. So she kind of packed up and moved her studio out to Saint Helena, where we lived. Um, and so we lived out in Saint Helena. She kind of got in with a little gallery out there for a while, and I went to school full time and um, learned a lot about all aspects of wine. It was service, but really focused on how things are made, and as, as well as uh, tasting. And so we went through a lot of formal training on how to taste wine and. How wine is made, and, and you know, little, you know, all, all the aspects of what the wine industry looked like. It was a lot of uh, uh, they they brought in a lot of different experts in the field, from master psalms to um, people who had distribution business or import businesses. They they had a lot of things. Culinary Institute of America, um, if if you for anyone who's not aware, is uh, it's really like it's a, probably the premier school for chefs in in the United States. So most of the Famous chefs you hear about all over the world that that are, are winning winning awards in the U.S. like James Beards and things like that. A lot of them ended up going through the CIA at one point or another. It has a really well regarded uh, culinary program, and so uh, while I didn't do any of the culinary part, we went through the wine program and and ended up getting to enjoy a lot of the a lot of the food from the people making it. So you're in California, fully immersed in wine culture, studying at the CIA, and eventually you get the idea to bring some of that knowledge back to Texas. Yeah, it kind of happened like this. We were in a, so this was towards the end, we had a specific South America intensive class. And so we were tasting stuff from Argentina and Chile, and uh, mostly Argentina and Chile. So tasting a lot of different wines. And they kind of had this seam that ran through them that was really similar. And then everything you taste blind, so they don't tell you where it is, what it what it is, where it's from, any of that information. And part of the class is you're talking about the wines, trying to discern what the wines are. And uh, and they poured two wines from Uruguay down in South America, a little tiny little country. And I tasted them, and I was just shocked by how different they were and how much they reminded me of European wines. And so that really started a spark in my mind of like, how can we find these wines? How can we get these wines? And I kind of tucked it away in the back of my head. And after I started working, I started working in retail in Austin. And when I was working in retail, I noticed a lot of the wines I had in this class, including wines from Uruguay, weren't available. And so that was kind of the second crazy idea that I had of why don't, if nobody else is bringing in wines from Uruguay, why don't, why don't we do it? And uh, I, it's amazingly, my wife still was like, yeah, that sounds fun. Let's do it. And then we moved to Uruguay for a few months and started that chapter. So I can think of a lot of reasons not to do that. Oh, yeah. hey, it's far away. Uh, I don't speak the language. Right. There's probably other people smarter than me who've tried to do this and failed, which is why they don't exist here. 
what was your secret sauce? How were you able to power through those things that had stopped other purported distributors? I would say the number one thing is probably ignorance. I uh, had no idea how complicated or difficult it would be. And I just, just kind of, I just jumped in with both feet. I mean, we we were out in California, moved to Austin. We kind of packed everything up and um, we, we just, we found a, an apartment to rent in Uruguay. I remember sitting down, it's like a short-term rental, sitting down when we got there. I'm jet lagged um, and I'm signing a, a lengthy contract that's all in Spanish and thinking to myself, what are we doing? What am I even signing here? And uh, yeah, we, we had a little apartment in Montevideo, the capital that we stayed in for a few months. And while we were there, we kind of slowly built relationships with different wine stores, bars, and then wineries as well, um, different people out there. Yeah. So then we found three wineries that we really loved and wanted to work with. And we started the process of getting licenses and permits and all those things, which was like a, a race all, all all in itself. It was, it was kind of, uh, it was kind of like a scavenger hunt. I felt like trying to get, you know, different pieces of information from different people in Austin and, you know, different offices were open for two hours, three times a week or something. And it was like, you had to get a signature from everybody and keep, keep moving. But yeah, we, we got the permits all done. That took about nine months. We got our first container of wine from Uruguay in, uh, unfortunately for me, we got it in the, the week after Thanksgiving, which is anyone in the wine industry will, will know that's probably the worst time you could get wine in because everyone's pretty much done with placing new wines. So we started really selling wine in January the following year. And what year would that have been? 2013, January 2013. It, it, like I said, it came in in November of 2012. But all these people had been, you know, bugging, hey, you know, we have these wines coming in, we want to sell wine, and they had tasted them, some were excited about them, but then they landed in November, and everyone was like, well, yeah, come talk to me again in January. So we set up appointments in January and started selling wine then. The bulk of your business is the distribution, but you do have a physical location in the uptown area of Waco. So at Austin Avenue and 18th, you can go visit the Waco Wine Shop and sample terrific wines from all across the world. Where did the idea to take this business concept from distribution to actually having a physical location, how did that manifest, and how did you decide on doing that in Waco? Yeah, so we were living in Austin, working in Austin, had a warehouse in Austin, um, and we had a lot of friends in Waco. We liked Waco a lot. We had kind of always held a soft spot in our hearts for Waco from our time at Baylor, and uh, also we just really liked the city a lot. And so we were trying to figure out ways we could move back, but we had a warehouse in Austin. It didn't seem very likely, but, you know, we uh, found out we were going to have our first kiddo, and uh, we're starting to look at houses in Austin and realizing that uh, we could move to Waco. I'm all, I was on, At the time, I was on the road all the time. Basically, I was the only employee. So I was doing deliveries and sales in Austin, Houston, Dallas, and San Antonio. So I, I realized Waco's right in the middle. I can buy a house for a lot less in Waco than I can in Austin, have a little bit better quality of life, and be a part of a, a really a, a growing, um, just there's like so many young entrepreneurs there. And it, there's there was an energy in Waco, and there still is, obviously. But um, we were really excited to be a part of that. And so we moved back to Waco, still so with the warehouse in Austin, and so for a time, it was just crazy. I would, uh, if I needed to deliver to Houston or something, I would try to plan ahead in my week and 
pick it up from the, the Austin warehouse when I was delivering in Austin, but there were times when that just wasn't feasible or didn't happen. So I'd drive from Waco to Austin, pick up wine, go to Houston, and come back to Waco. And I, you know, ended up driving a lot and realizing this is a lot more challenging than I thought to have a warehouse in a city that I'm not living in. And kind of when I started looking, a friend of mine, Peter Ellis, he um, had this space that he was looking at and uh, he mentioned us purchasing, uh, renting the space and him purchasing the building um, as a warehouse. And he had the back room where we would store all the wine and he mentioned this front room and he, I think he called it, said we could use it as like a area for reception or something like anybody might, but we don't really have any visitors to the warehouse usually. And so um, I, the building was really cool and, I, and my wife and I had this idea. We'd always wanted a wine shop. That's really what we wanted before we got into distribution. The whole reason we went into distribution was because there were all these wines that existed that never made it to Texas and we wanted to help bring those wines to Texas. And so we found the space and we realized we can actually sell wines here as well. And so the, the idea um, really came about because of the space. And, and we, we saw an opportunity to open a storefront um, in Waco. Uh, and also because we had um, a lot of our friends were asking us what we were doing. And it was really complicated and difficult to explain what we were doing. And so this gave a really tangible way to show people what we were doing. You're hearing from David Mayfield, owner of David Mayfield Selections, which has their distribution business, as well as their physical location of the wine shop in Uptown. David, you opened the Waco Wine Shop in 2018, I believe it was, and you've been doing this now for about five years with a commercial presence. How have you noticed the tastes of Wacoans, the tastes of your customers, have changed over the last five years? Yeah, I would say... I'm. So in Waco, we, we've certainly followed, there, there's been a trend in, in wine that's moved towards what, what kind of the, the niche that we work in is called natural wine. Um, we Can you uh, define that for me? <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of wish anybody could. It's a really complicated term or there's not really a definition. There's certainly no legal definition to natural wine. The wines we work with start with um, organic farming kind of at, at the minimum and they kind of lean towards uh, no intervention at all. So we have everything, though, from things that are far, grapes that are farmed organically to things that have no fining, no filtration, no sulfur, uh, no additives of any kind. Um, and so um, that natural wine can be anything in between that spectrum. So you can have organic, organic grapes um, all the way to um, grapes that are farmed basically without any real intervention. And then on top of that, um, wines made without any intervention at all, no, no temperature control, no, none of the things that, that wineries tend to do. Very kind of anti-commercial at, at the extreme end. But um, So when you say natural wine, does that largely mean the process looks like it looked a thousand years ago? Like, correct. Yeah, that's why the term is kind of complicated because natural wine, uh, add, adding a term and thinking of it as a trend – kind of sh makes makes one think that this type of wine is new, um, but in reality, it's just going back. I mean, um, wines made with, uh, so, so the whole history of pesticides and herbicide use really dates back to the, the wars, the Great Wars, uh, the World War I and World War, War II, when chemicals were produced uh, for warfare. And after a time of chemicals being produced for warfare um, and getting a lot of money from different governments to do so, um, they 
the war ended and these companies wanted to find a way to stay stay afloat and they realized things that these chemicals that had harmed people also have do pretty good at um, killing plants and so that's kind of how these chemicals began and really for most farmers it was thought of as a way to make life a little bit easier most of the advertisements at the time um, were formed on just the basis of hey you can actually take a vacation you can have a reliable crop you don't have to worry about um, you know is this going to be a good year or a bad year it, it made some reliability to farming when you are trying a glass for the first time what's going through your mind what are the the high points that you have to hit to determine whether this is good or bad for you or whether it's something that should be carried so I mean, first, first of all, I think a lot of our, my determining what, what wines we carry depends on the people we work with. So it's really, there's a personal relationship before there's a, there's a, even tasting. We, I don't do a whole lot of uh, blind tasting anymore and, and tasting without context. So we work with, and in the end, the wines we work with come from people. And so we try to focus on that human aspect of, of the wines a lot. And, uh, so we start with that, and then after that, we you know are tasting through to to just kind of find interesting or unique things. That's what, what what has always interested me in wine is that it can be so different. And wine is this beverage that is kind of it's this big big category wine, but in reality, it can mean a lot of different things. It can be something that's like a white wine that's got that's spent time on its skin, so it's like white and tannic and a little bit bitter, or it can be like light and fresh, uh, or it can be sweet. Uh, there's so many different flavors that can exist in this one thing we call wine, and it all comes from from grapes. Um, and that's kind of what, for me, is the magic of wine, is that it's so different, and it can that difference is what makes it exciting and interesting. What's interesting happening in Texas wines right now? I feel like I've been hearing an outsized amount of stories about vineyards in Texas, whether it's West Texas or even here where we are in Central Texas. Yeah, so I would say Texas is certainly experiencing something of a renaissance. Um, we work with a few different growers in, in Texas. Um, we, we work with um, South Hole Farm and Cellars is um, one of the wineries we work with in Texas, and, and they're they're in Fredericksburg. That's where their winery is. Um, in the Hill Country, they, they farm their grapes there. And uh, and also they buy really great grapes from this guy named uh, Dan McLaughlin. He's kind of been, he's, he's this guy in Texas that's been taking on the charge of farming organically, um, which isn't really that common. Um, and it, he's kind of exists almost within a bubble and, and that a lot of organic farmers, if you look at California producers and all, all across the U.S., they basically came from this, uh, they, they saw it in, happening in Europe, and they moved that idea to the United, back to the United States. Dan's just kind of like, he's kind of learning it as he goes, kind of on his own. Um, and yeah, so South Hold buys a lot of their grapes from them, and they also farm some of their own, and uh, we work with them. They're making some really interesting wines from different varieties. They've got some Gruner Veltliner that's really cool. They farm um, some Portuguese varieties that, that are pretty fun. And uh, then, then from them, they kind of have been a, like a, a central force for us. We, we have another winery that we work with um, called Lightsome. Um, Adrian Balu is the winemaker's name. She, uh, she got her start at 
um, Jester King actually, and then started working at Southhold for a while, and she's just branching off and starting her own project. Those wines are really special and fun too. Do they taste markedly different from wines that would come from West Texas? Like even the terroir in Texas changes the effect. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So you're. I mean, it's it's both that the idea of like the the location changing it for sure. They taste different, and then on top of that, you know, you have really big climate differences, and so you tend to have a little more acid and and the stuff in North Texas because it's a cooler climate. You you can tend to have freshness, but a lot of people are picking earlier in the hill country, and so that gives a little bit of that freshness. Um, but so the growers we work with in Texas, I should say, are also working in this sort of natural style. So they're they're farming organically, um, indigenous yeast fermentations. So like you would a, make a sourdough versus a commercial yeast bread or something. Um, they're just using the yeast in the air, and they're they're not adding really much to their wines or taking much away. Something that's unique about your business is that you are working with importers and growers, and it's not just, you know, the person who ends up smashing the grape, right? There's this concept of the vigneron, which is a much more all-inclusive way to view winemaking and view relationships. Yeah, so we a lot of times talk about winemakers. I I sometimes use that term as well because it's easier understood. Um, But a lot of times we'll, we'll talk about growers. And so Winemake, the term winemaker really came, came about from an idea of uh, kind of in the 90s when you're looking at winemakers that, that are kind of coming up with this recipe or this ingredient. They're trying to get scores on Robert Parker. They're trying to build this wine that tastes a certain way. They're, they're looking at a wine and trying to get it to taste exactly like, you know, something else. Um, and what we have and what we tend to work with are, are growers or, like like you said, the French term vigneron is – it's a term that most most of these people use, these growers use to uh, – they, they talk – they call themselves vigneron. They don't really have a specific term for winemaker, and it really means people that work primarily in the vineyard. So most of the people we work with are going to say and believe that, the, that making wine starts – in, in the vineyard, that's the most important part. And so they're making careful farming decisions, and that usually means what they're, what they're doing or what they're not doing in the vineyards. Um, they often have a lot of wild or native grasses and plants growing in the vineyards. I went to one couple summers ago that had these, like, tiny wild strawberries that grow in the vineyard. There's, uh, you know, they, they, they have a biodiversity within their vineyards that they're trying to bring back. And uh, that, so they're really grape growers more than and, and farmers more than they are winemakers. I also think the term winemaker, at least in my mind, invokes someone who's buttoned up and, you know, wears a collared shirt and a jacket and, you know, sells wine and makes, like, scientific decisions about wine. Not that these people aren't using science or thinking about it that way, but most of these people have hands that are farmers hands that you know they have dirt under their nails and rough calluses all over their hands they they work outside in the vineyards most of the time one thing i've really enjoyed about the wine shop is that you guys have this monthly csa community supported agriculture uh, where i think it's 60 bucks a month and you get three different bottles and you know just recently i went to a crawfish boil i bought this or i brought a fabulous rosé that was in there from catalonia somewhere outside of barcelona and i loved that but i've been experiencing so many wild flavors that i had never run into before and certainly wouldn't have just ordered off the 
top of my head, but like orange wines and really vivacious, sour, wild things that I didn't even know you could put into a bottle. In in my mind, that's kind of what separates what I can get at the wine shop versus going to Pogo's or to, to Twin Liquors is that it is the relationship that you have with these vignerons, and you can tell there's a humanity behind the relationship you have. But just simply the flavors that you guys provide are, are very different from anything else I've noticed. Yeah, and that that's, like I said earlier, that's one of the things that interests me most about uh, working in the world of wine is the uh, is the the variety of flavors you can get from it and the variety of grapes that are grown and the areas that grapes are grown. And that's honestly, that's what led me towards natural wine. I didn't have the term natural wine in the back of my head when I started. It was really just finding interesting wines from interesting places. And uh, that led me across this whole world of people making interesting wines. And part of that has to do with uh, indigenous yeast fermentation, just like in um, sourdough bread versus regular bread, you're going to get, you know, a diversity of flavors in in that. And it's going to depend on where you're at because the yeast cultures vary. Um, But uh, yeah, it, it also has to do with the the types of grapes and the regions these are being made. But yeah, the, the CSA is a great way to experience the kind of a sampling of what we do. We try to we try to make it so that you get different stuff every month and it's always gonna change um, because we want people to be able to experience that diversity in, in the world of wine. Um, and we called it a CSA as opposed to a wine club, honestly, because we, we, we view wine as an agricultural product and not as much of a commercial product. And so because it's this agricultural product, we are trying to be the connection um, between the final consumer and the person growing the grapes and making the wine. Today is Good Friday, and we will be having many glasses of wine drunk in my house over the next few days. I wonder when we're thinking about the Easter meal, particularly on Sunday, and if folks are going out deciding what should be on the table, do you have any suggestions of things that you have in stock or what should people be thinking of in terms of pairing a wine with a food? Yeah, so I'm gonna, I'll, I'll take this opportunity to make my shameless cider pitch um, because uh, cider is exactly so much like wine and it and really is wine more than it is beer. Um, we work with a couple great cider producers, one of which is in Vermont. Um, Fable Farm is the name of the, 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 the grower. Um, they work mostly with foraged apples. They have they planted some of their own, but they really started with foraged apples in Vermont. Um, they use these sort of ancestral methods of making ciders um, using, so the, one of the ones that I would highly recommend is the Fluxion. It's a blend of multiple vintages. They kind of keep it in these old barrels and do like a Solera system, um, and then they... Uh, what does a Solera system mean? It's the, uh, so Solera is... is taken from sherry, where basically you start with a base vintage and you remove, say, a third of that vintage and you add back the new vintage and you continue to do that for years and years and years. So you have a blend in the end of multiple years of particular product. In this case, it's uh, it's apples, so it's foraged apples, and it's a, it's a continuous blend. So this is the fifth year that it's been going for, and uh, so they re-ferment it, so it's sparkling, not still. Um, they do have a still cider that's fantastic too, but this one's sparkling. They re-ferment it though with, uh, with maple from, uh, from Vermont. So they're, obviously they're from Vermont. Everything they use is based there. They don't add anything or filter. It's, it's really pure, fresh cider. It's also low ABV, so it's easier to you know, drink more than, than a glass or two. Um, I would highly recommend that. Um, and if you're having a big party, we work with a, 
with with a producer. Um, his name is Avi Dexler. Um, the winery is Absentee, and we have magnums of this rosé that he makes. It's pretty fantastic. I'll get you out of here on this, David. One thing I love about going to the wine shop and buying wine from you guys is that your bags or the walls are stamped with quotes. And I want to read this piece from Hugh Johnson, who wrote this in 1966. He's talking about how wine is an opportunity to drink in the world. And he says, It would not be so fascinating if there were not so many different kinds. Although there are people who do not care for it and who think it no more than a nuisance that a wine list has so many names on it, the whole reason that wine is worth study is its variety. It seems like you've really taken that to heart and sort of made that the model of your business. You want to help people push the boundaries for what they're willing to drink and understand a little bit more about the process and the unique ways that these wines come to the surface. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. That that quote certainly stuck with me. Uh, it's we have we have it on the wall of the shop, and uh, Hugh Johnson is was is an old British wine writer um, who has some wonderful ways he talks about wine. Uh, that's certainly one of them. Um, he he was part of the the old school of wine writers, um, and we uh, yeah we, we we love what he had to say there. Honestly, yeah, you, you hit it hit the nail on the head there. That that is what I think is exciting and interesting about wine is the the diversity in it. David Mayfield is the owner of the Waco Wine Shop, David Mayfield Selections. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Thanks for having me, Austin. Thanks again to David Mayfield of David Mayfield Selections and the Waco Wine Shop. And to you for tuning in to episode 147 of Downtown Depot here on Waco Public Radio. You can find me in between episodes on Instagram and Facebook at Waco Business News. And join me again the third Friday of the month for another conversation with a small business owner, civic leader, or engaged citizen sparking Waco's revitalization. I'm Austin Meek, and you've been listening to Downtown Depot, where we track the ins and outs of Waco business. This has been a Rogue Media Network production.